0: Good morning and happy Father's Day. I want to start today. I want to pray for the fathers and for the father figures. So let's do this in your homes. If your father is with you or if he's not with you, if he's somewhere else, um, let's pray and let's pause and let's remember them. Fatherhood does not come with a manual and reality teaches us that some fathers excel while others let us down. We ask, Lord, for your blessing for them all and forgiveness where it is needed. This Father's Day, we remember the many sacrifices fathers make for their children and families and the ways, both big and small, they encourage children to achieve their dreams, often considered beyond reach. So, too, we remember all those who have helped fill the void where fathers pass early or are absent, or do not live with their children. Thank you, God, for the grandfathers and uncles, brothers and cousins, teachers and friends. Thank you, God, for the women in our families who sometimes fill the voids of father figures where there is lack. For those who are fathers, we ask for wisdom and humility in the face of the task of parenting. Give them the strength to do well by their children and by you, God. In your holy name, O God, we pray. Amen. This week, I want to do something slightly different. Last week, my wife Sarah brought a word, a prophetic word, which in the simplest terms is a sense where God is speaking and someone hears and communicates what they've heard. And it was around the subject of unity. This very day, this morning, I received a text message from someone who I also know hears from God in unique ways. And I want to read what he sent to me. I believe it's from God. I believe it's for for all of us. He says this. May there be clarity in this day of the presence of heaven, not from a distance, but seen up close. The unrest in the land is not against flesh and blood, which is people. The target is the church, the bride of Christ. It is an honor to walk together, not in fear, but with the intimate presence of the risen Christ. The torn veil gives us access to his magnificence. As I read that and I received this text this morning, I sensed that this was from God that whilst there's great unrest at the moment there is a challenge that the unrest could could damage the church but that's not God's will God's will is that we will be one so it feels fitting to receive that this week as I've been praying and preparing along the subject of unity God what are you saying to your church which is us people what does it mean in the context of 2020 which is a turbulent year and how can we learn from you in the example of being one so I want to look at a few ideas, a few subjects. Some of them may be considered spicy subjects, uh, hot topics. And I want to lead in the direction of what model, what example does Jesus give his disciples in the historical text of what happened in Jesus' life and in the teaching and the prayers that precede that moment into this life and this moment, the timeless teaching and example of Jesus. May that be the foundation of which we make our decisions. So, let's look at some things. I think as an opener, it's fair to say that we all know that we need each other. I'm standing in a room at the moment, and there are people that you can see and people that you can't see, but together they make something work. And on their own, it wouldn't work the same. We need each other. And this is the way God has made us. We are diverse, we're different, but yet when we come together, there is an effectiveness. Jesus described The church in this way, and later New Testament writers described it like a body that whilst there are different parts, we absolutely need each other, and one isn't more important than the other. Sometimes we make an error in life where we make something to be more important or someone less so that somebody else can be considered more, and that's not the way the creative order is meant to be. We see this pattern of unity and togetherness in nature, an interesting simple example, horses, can pull quite a large weight a strong fit horse on its own can pull up to 6,000 pounds of weight if there are two horses joined together pulling a similar cart they can pull 18,000 pounds of weight now for those of you that are good at maths you may be working at well surely 6 plus 6 equals 12 it does But when they come together, they're more effective. They can do more. They can achieve more. And we know that. Nature works better in this way. And I would say that God has made all of nature, including people, to work where we need each other. So the subject of unity, which is what I'm going to be looking at today, is really important. Before we look at the subject of unity, I want to talk about the subject of conflict. A few weeks ago, I I touched on this lightly in an update video that we send out on our social media platforms on a Wednesday. I want to delve a little bit deeper into this because the elephant in the room that is some of these subjects are around us in the news on social media every day almost. 2020 has had some significant moments that have changed the way we live and have sparked considerable conflict. And I recognize that conflict can be in all of us, and sometimes it can lead to good things, sometimes it can lead to terrible things. And I want to talk about the subject of uni, uh, unity, but recognize the conflicts of 2020. And I want to speak and look at some of them now. So the first one would be coronavirus, the unending world pandemic that actually isn't unending and is improving, which is wonderful news. But this news story feels unending. Every day, the same news sometimes just constantly coming at you. And it's, it's provoked conflict. There's been lockdown. There was protests against the lockdown. There were scientists saying one thing, and there were government officials seemingly saying something else. How has it been handled? When and how do we re-enter? Should we rush back or should we be slow? And there's different people watching this even now that would land in different places. And for some people, it's caused considerable uncertainty and fear. Some people have said it's all a hoax. It's all made up. None of it's true. We, everything should go back now. There are other people who have taking it so seriously They live in such a level almost of concern and possibly fear that I sometimes see people driving in their cars on their own wearing a mask. Such is the contrast of opinion around coronavirus. More recently, the subject of racism, which understandably has provoked a reaction. As I've said the last few weeks, and I'll say it again, we condemn condemn racism And we condemn violence against all people, against civilians and against police. I heard someone speak, uh, a guy called Andy Stanley, who's a great communicator. And he said this, not being a racist isn't good enough. Many of us would say, I'm not a racist, therefore it doesn't apply to me. Actually, if you're a member of the human race, it does apply to you because we have a care and concern for all people. So to say not doing something isn't enough, it would be like saying uh, I I don't abuse children. Now just because you don't, if you see somebody else that does, you can't just make yourself exempt of that crime because you don't do it. We have a response to act. We can't sit complacent while some people suffer and other people don't. We can't just walk by, to use a Jesus story and a Jesus analogy. Where we live in our apartments, um, we have a great community. And of the many world races, most of them are represented in our apartment blocks. And we benefit greatly from the friendships that we have with the people there who look and sound differently, who have different stories and different backgrounds. And I'm grateful for that cultural blend. I feel that it's good for our children. I feel it's good for us. And I'm grateful that I don't just know these people, but um, many of them are my friends. I'm very grateful for that. One of the debates, one of the arguments that I've seen recently on social media that I do want to speak about here for a moment, has been some of the statements and the hashtags around Black Black Lives Matters, and all lives matters. I want to look at this and I want to use a Jesus story and a Jesus analogy. In the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 15, Jesus tells a series of stories about something that is lost. He tells a story about a lost sheep, a story about a lost coin, and a story about a lost son. And if you read these stories, they're parables, they're analogies where Jesus is trying to convey the heart of God, and the story goes that there is a sense of looking for and rejoicing when what was lost was found. Now, if we connect with the heart of this story, we see that God's heart is always for that sense of restoring and bringing back to a sense of what was lost. I want to look at this in the the context of Black Life Matters and All Life Matters. There have been some people that have argued over these two stances, and I want to make a statement. I want to make an opinion that's based on the heart of what I see in the story of the lost sheep. In the story of the lost sheep, the story begins that there are 100 sheep, and one of them is missing. One of them is outside of the pen, outside of the shelter, outside of the field, and is somewhere else. The other 99 are in the pen, in the field, in the shelter and the shepherd and in the story of jesus jesus is the good shepherd he leaves the 99 and he goes and he looks for the one and he brings it back i want to look at that story through the lens of black lives matters there is a pen and there are 99 sheep and they enjoy sanctuary they enjoy protection they enjoy benefits They enjoy food and nourishment because a shepherd provides well for the sheep. Some would say they enjoy privilege. And then there's a sheep that doesn't enjoy those same benefits, doesn't have that same privilege and potentially is at a disadvantage and could be at danger. And the story goes that the shepherd who loves all of the sheep because all lives do matter and the 99 sheep left in the pen are important, but there is a sense of weighted priority that is given that if there is one that is at danger, if there is one that is disadvantaged, is there if there is one that does not have the same opportunities and privilege and protection of the others, the shepherd is inclined to go to that one and to care for that one and to give a priority to that one with the celebration that happens when they're brought together, where they all can enjoy the same benefits and opportunities. My friends, may I put this to you, that in the context of Black Lives Matters, for too long there have been a group of people who have been disadvantaged, who haven't had the same opportunity, the same privilege, the same protection to use this shepherd in a field picture. And I believe that it is always God's heart to go to the one who's struggling, who's suffering, the group of people who are disadvantaged. The New Testament leans heavily in the direction of caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and bringing them back. And in the subject of black lives matter, they do matter. We know that all lives matter. The 99 are still loved and they're still good. But it is always the heart of God for care, to care and to go beyond themselves to care And to reach the person or the persons or the race that for too long have had a disadvantage. One more subject that's caused considerable conflict and debate in 2020. Let's talk about politics. The road that I drive down to get here to Tory Street, I drive past the house and on the front lawn of the house, there's a sign that says, elect this person. The next house along, there's another sign that says, elect this person. These two neighbors live next to each other, and clearly they think and vote differently. This week, I was driving somewhere, and I stopped at a traffic light. And on the corner of the traffic light, there was a group of people holding signs saying, vote for this person. Five feet away from that group was another group holding another set of signs saying, vote for this person. Five feet away, another group. Another set of signs saying vote for this person. Together, but voting differently. This year feels like this is a subject of conflict. And I want to speak into this from a neutral perspective, bringing some of my observations that I've seen so far. If you watch TV, two major news channels, Fox News and CNN, coming into this country, I've been slightly. Surprised by the sense of bias of both of these news channels, I saw a comical entry um, two years ago where Obama said that if he watched Fox News, he would never vote for himself. And I'm guessing if the current President Donald Trump voted CNN, uh, watched CNN, he would probably not vote for himself. Such is the sense of bias and tilt that these news agencies seemingly give in the way they communicate their stories. Whilst we're here? Let's talk about the president. I believe that biblically we should pray for our leaders. And that is still the case if you don't believe, like, or even voted for the person who's currently in leadership. We should pray for them. It's not an easy job. We should pray for them and we should honor the office. I said I'm someone who's politically neutral. I'm here as a permanent resident with a green card, I can't vote. Uh, I want to give you some observations briefly on this subject. It would appear that some people have such a sense of love and devotion to the current president that it's almost unconditional love. And it doesn't matter what the president says or does, they continue to give him unconditional support. Equally, there are another group of people, and they seemingly give the president unconditional hatred and dislike. And it doesn't matter what the president says or does, they continue with this unconditional dislike. Tapping in further, I asked some people some of their opinions because I believe that there's value in listening. Let me read to you some of their opinions. In terms of the group that loved the current president, some of them have said this to me. He has maintained and delivered promises that he made. And sadly, that has not always been the case for our elected officers. He has supported Christians, and some say he is a Jesus follower himself. And also they've said this, he has undoubtedly suffered unfairly at the hands of the modern media. And they have grounds for all of these statements. That's from the group of people that love the current president from the group of people that do not like the president these are some of the these are some of the comments that i've heard i've said he speaks horribly of people he's cruel and unkind and a poor role model somebody said to me he has condemned the church his words and actions are a long way short of the gospel of jesus and somebody else said his frequent almost endless accusations of misconduct cannot all be fake news. I say this subject and all of these subjects aware that they're spicy and they're contentious. And there's part of me that deliberately does want to poke at this because this is in us and around us all the time. And into the context of these subjects, I want to say, what God are you saying? Before I get to that, may I ask you to do two things. Firstly, may I ask you not to label people. When someone says something or has a particular idea or conviction or tilt in the way they would vote or consider, please don't just label them. Oh, that person's liberal. Oh, that person's conservative. Oh, that person's so Trump. That person is this wacky. Please don't label people. Please, may I invite you, encourage you to honor people with a sense of integrity that they are sons and daughters of God and they're made in his image. And may I also encourage you to listen. I know a very wise person who said this in the context where everyone speaks loudly and has something to say. And he said, I would do well to listen because anything I could say, I already know. May I encourage you to listen to someone who may be different, who may watch a different news channel, who may vote differently to you. Because sometimes when we listen, we find ourselves in the shoes of somebody else, and it gives us a greater understanding. So we believe in unity, but we know that it isn't easy. Now, one way where churches create unity is somebody in a role like mine presents a set of ideas and this is how we should consider things and interpret things and this is how we should vote and everyone should do that and if you don't do that you're wrong and we'll label you a sinner. What happens is the people that don't like that leave and we end up with a group of people who all look and sound a little bit like ourselves. May I say to you I'm not convinced that's the Jesus model of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus gathering with other disciples of Jesus centered around the gospel and teaching of Jesus. I want to look at that subject in a moment. Before I do, let me make this comment. As a church, we work in the context of team. Uh, I have the privilege, the role and responsibility to bring leadership, but I do that in the context of a team of men and women. We call it the board. This is a brief introduction to what that team does. The board are to be guardians of the vision and values of the church. They are to provide oversight and to be shepherds of the church and to oversee the church's assets and budget and provide wise and faith-filled stewardship of such resources. The team is diverse. There are times when we see things from different angles. There are times where there are different voices in the room. I believe... When we can work to maturity where there is diversity, but yet unity around purpose, I believe that that's an effective model. I want to make one comment, a decision. Our board meeting, our board meets monthly and we met this week. And our board met and agreed unanimously that as a church, we want to make more than just statements around the subject of racial equality. So we are gathering a team of people together to look at the subject of racial equality in the context of South Shore Community Church. We're going to consider our past and the story that's led to today. We're going to consider our present. We're going to listen to some voices. And the board will then receive some advice and recommendations from that team, from that subgroup, around what are our aims and objectives and goals for the future where we can celebrate the diversity that is the body of Christ in the context of racial equality. More updates will come on that over the coming weeks. So, how do we pursue unity? May I put to you that the foundation for our unity isn't that we all think the same, vote the same, or like the same things, but the foundation for our unity is the example of Jesus the way he lived, and his teaching. In a few moments, we're going to delve into some passages. But before we do, I want to give an example of the challenge of what does it mean to be disciples of Jesus gathered together. The first group of disciples of Jesus are the disciples that Jesus called, that he chose, that he surrounded himself by. If you've ever read a Bible or seen a painting of Jesus and his disciples, sometimes we imagine these beautiful moments of peace and harmony where everyone smiles and looks the same. I'm not convinced that was entirely accurate. Let me introduce the disciples to you, and may I encourage you to consider some of their personalities. So the disciples... Asked some questions. Some of the questions that they asked that we know of that are recorded in the Gospels. One of the questions was Who is the greatest among us? Who's the best? One of the questions where the disciples asked their mother to speak to Jesus and to ask on their behalf because they were a little bit embarrassed went along the lines of When you're in heaven, can this son sit on your left and this son sit on, on the right? Can you imagine how that would have annoyed the other disciples? two of the disciples james and john were known to have a temper and to be outspoken so much so that jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder they were angry boisterous guys let me go through the 12 and give you a brief statement about their personality peter was loud and outspoken james the brother of john is often described as being in his shadow he's in the inner circle but he's lesser known he was a fisherman John, who wrote the Gospel of John, self-labeled himself as the one that Jesus likes the most, or the one that Jesus loved. Andrew, the brother of Peter, is a disciple of John who introduced Peter to Jesus, and then Peter becomes a bigger character than he did. Bartholomew, is intelligent. He's got a wealthy background, and he's in the context of fishermen who probably weren't as studied. And you can imagine that at times that that may have been... Uh, Interesting. James is the younger son of Alphaeus. He's quiet. Doesn't say much. We know very little about him. Judas is the betrayer. And it's known that he's the betrayer. And he organized the finances and he had a reputation for taking some of the money when nobody was looking. Matthew was a tax collector. Nobody liked tax collectors. Philip was a preacher and he was outspoken. Simon, we know little about. And Thomas, we know because we call him the doubter, which seems unfair. If you considered this group of people, if you went to a party and this 12 people were in the room, there were times where they're not going to get on. They're going to fall out. They're going to see things differently. They may, in the modern context, have voted differently, have watched different news channels, and had different ideas. But they were centered around the teaching and the example of Jesus. So I believe in our context of Christian community, as current disciples of Jesus, it is possible to be different, to see things from different perspectives, but to be focused around the person, the teaching, and the mission of Jesus. How do we do that? If you've got your Bibles, turn to John 17, verse 20, and we're going to be reading It's going to appear on the screen as well. This is a time in the Bible where Jesus knows that the cross is ahead. And he pauses and he prays for his disciples because he knows that they argue, they fall out, they think differently. In many ways, Jesus was the original homeschooler with this group of people. And he prays for them. And then... He prays for us. He prays for the disciples that will follow. Let me read this prayer. May I encourage you to hear the heart of God for you and for me and for us in the prayer of Jesus. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you loved me. It is Jesus's prayer, and therefore it is his heart, that we would be one. That there would be complete unity. Sadly, the church hasn't always been known for complete unity, but it's been known for division and unrest because we're different people with different personalities who watch different news stations and think differently. It is Jesus his prayer and petition and heart's cry that we would be one. How? Because we gather around the central focus of Jesus that we would be in the Father and the Father would be in us. And here's a real challenge. Jesus said, by this, they will know that you sent me. Those that don't know Jesus will know that Jesus is good by the example of the unity in the church. Our oneness, our togetherness, our complete unity will be an example to the world. Let's not be the example where we argue with each other on social media and speak ill of people behind their back. But let's be a group of people who promote each other because we're in the Father and they are in the Father and we are one because of what Jesus has done. What does this look like? Let me give you some practical example. Sticking with John's gospel, turn back a few pages to John 13. I'm going to read something that I haven't given the text to the tech guy, so it may not be on the screen. So I'll read this, so just listen. John 13 is the beginning of the Last Supper. A meal that Jesus said, I've eagerly waited to eat this with you. And it said this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So at the beginning of the meal, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist, After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel as he wrapped it around them. Some context. In Jesus' day, they traveled by walking, the roads were dusty, and it was hot, and their feet got dirty. They would often have a full bath at some point of the day, but frequently during the course of the day, they would wash their feet. Perhaps similar to the frequency of which we have washed our hands in 2020. Now, the way it would work is you would arrive at a meal and there would be somebody who would seat you and someone that would serve the meal and somebody else, a servant, would wash your feet. And it was the lowest job. Could you imagine going into a restaurant? Someone shows you to a table. Someone gives you a menu. Someone else comes along and washes your feet. This is the job that nobody wanted. And at the beginning of this most profound meal, where Jesus talks about the sacrifice that he is making for the unity of God and people, Jesus begins by washing their feet, and it confuses them. I believe this will be on the screen. Why did he do it, and what does it look like? John thirteen twelve to 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, which is a really nice Jesus way of saying, please don't take yourself too seriously. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The example of unity in the context of disciples of Jesus who are diverse, argumentative, and see things differently, is that we're gathered around Jesus and we care for each other. We wash each other's feet We go beyond ourselves. And Jesus says, I've done this for you as an example. And there's this small word do at the end, which is so heavily loaded. He doesn't say now that you know these things, you will do well if you talk about them and if you argue about them on social media. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. May we as the church, as the current disciples of Jesus who sometimes think differently, may we do the things that Jesus did and say them. And may we do that for each other, even though at times we don't agree with each other. May we do that so that the world will see that there's something different. And what's different isn't that we've all signed up to the same statement of how we're going to live and vote, But what's different is the power and presence of Jesus in us that flows from us to the world around us. You should wash each other's feet. You should care for someone on the outside. If there's a group, if there's a race that have struggled and not had the same advantage, you will be blessed if you wash their feet, if you care for them, if you champion them. You'll be blessed if you do these things. Why? Because this is how people will know that Jesus was sent from God, because of the example of us. So unity is made possible by Jesus, and we're invited to participate in that. These passages lead in the direction of a table and a symbol, which we celebrate as communion. Jesus said, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. I've eagerly desired to have this moment, to bring this teaching, to bring this symbolism for you. And that's what we're going to do now. If you have prepared some juice or wine, I want to encourage you to to reach for it now. And I'm going to introduce this and then we're going to pray together. At this meal, the meal begins with Jesus saying his desire is that we would be one. And then later he explains how we're going to be one. Because there's only one way, and that way is Jesus. And for anyone and everyone that doesn't know that, there is an invitation to know Jesus. And there's one table. And in the example of the disciples at the time, they're all sat around the same table. There's one table, but everyone is invited. There is one cup. And Jesus said, this cup is symbolic of my blood that's going to be poured out as a sacrifice for you. That you and the Father would be one. As Jesus and the Father have been been one, Jesus is restoring and making us one through the sacrifice of the cup. And there's one bread. And Jesus said, this bread is going to be broken. And the bread is symbolic of my body, one body, which is broken for many, that we would be one with the Father. And the invitation that is being made where Jesus says, take this and eat this and take this and drink this, is that we would all be invited to one family one God, one table, one cup, one church, and Jesus makes it possible. So we come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different races, to the one table to meet the one Lord and the one Jesus that changes everything. So may we pause, may we remember, may we celebrate, and may we focus our unity and our oneness on the person of Jesus and may that change us not just in a not just in a service in a ceremony and an action but may it change us to such a way that those that don't know us will go my goodness Jesus is real because of that example of unity that starts here and here may I encourage you to pray and to pause in your family and your home Wherever you are at the moment and celebrate the bread and the wine. And then stay around. Rox is going to lead us to one more song in a few moments. We're going to take a pause now where we're going to do this and remember this moment because this is the moment that makes unity possible. This is the moment that restores the disconnect and makes us one.